I had the privilege uh, yesterday of attending a memorial service for Kurt Winters. Uh, many of you probably knew Kurt and Kay, and they used to sit right over here. And probably many of you who do know Kurt know him for playing the saxophone. You've probably heard him play up on this platform, or he played before our outdoor Christmas Eve services a couple years ago. And uh, at his service, they had uh, Dixieland Band there. And I tell you, if there's a way to go out, it, it was a pretty great way to go out. So we sang, when the saints go marching in, this little light of mine, it was, uh, it was fantastic. So, um, you know, continue to pray for Kay as she you know, figures kind of what her life is like at this point and makes some decisions. But it was just good to, to celebrate. It really was a celebration of his home going. And it was a great time yesterday. As we enter into back into our series on Teach Us to Pray, we have got today and then next week we'll be wrapping up the series, but as we continue to move through this prayer, there's a couple things I just wanted to highlight maybe from last week. You know, the uh, idea of bonus material, this is bonus material we didn't get through last Sunday, but a couple of observations in the, in the prayer, what we talked about, give us today. It's, it's just, I, we were thinking about that, the idea of praying daily and even praying this prayer daily, I just want to encourage you to, to consider that. And as I was thinking about it, I think it makes sense almost you could do it twice. Once at night when you're saying, God, thank you for giving me today my daily bread. There's an opportunity to express gratitude. And then you wake up the next morning, okay, God, would you please give me my daily bread today? What a great cycle to get in of just reminding ourselves we're dependent upon you every day, God, and we thank you every day for what you have provided for us. It's a great way to move through this prayer. And then just the second observation, the idea of if you notice that the pronouns referring to us are plural, right? Our Father, give us. And Jesus could have chosen to make them individual, you know, my Father, give me. I mean, that doesn't sound quite right. It sounds a little better to say give us than give me. But really, at times we do pray, Father, would you give me what I need? There's nothing wrong with doing that. But I find it interesting that Jesus chose to use words of community, and there's a sense in which there is something about remembering that I'm not alone in this. And it isn't just about me. It's about the community that God is building called his church. And we are all invited to come, even collectively, to, verse, to uh, voice this prayer. So I thought as we begin this morning, why don't we, in community, uh, say this prayer once again together. It'll be on the screen. You can just read it out loud with me if you would. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Today we're going to look at the second of the three requests. After the request to give us today our daily bread, there's a, the request for the Father's provision in our lives. And then we move to this statement, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Some questions that arise from this statement that we need to answer. First of all, who are we seeking forgiveness from? Remind ourselves, who are we praying to? Our Father. We are seeking forgiveness from the God of the universe, but also the God who is in relationship with us. We only seek forgiveness when we have done wrong. We seek forgiveness when we've wronged someone. It's, it doesn't make sense to ask for forgiveness. And maybe you've had this where you say, oh, what, what am I forgiving you for? You haven't done anything. We only ask for forgiveness when we've wronged someone. 
And so there's a sense, there's an assumption almost made here by God and teaching, by Jesus and teaching us to pray that we have wronged the Father and we need to seek his forgiveness. So what? We need to forgive. We need to ask for his forgiveness, but we're also going to see that we need to forgive. And forgiveness is a decision. It's an action. It's a decision to pardon or cancel a debt. To relinquish resentment or desire for revenge. That's all wrapped up in this idea of forgive. That's what we're asking for. And as we're going to see, that's also what we're called to offer. And why are we asking for this? Because of our debts. We have debts to God. We have things we've done that have been offensive to him. Asking for forgiveness means we are acknowledging that we've wronged God. That we are accountable to him in some way. And therefore, we are indebted to him because of the things we have done that are offensive. Now, as we've moved through this prayer, we've tried often to go back and say, what would that original audience have thought of when Jesus used the language that he used? And so when he uses this word debt, there's certainly things that they would have thought of in their Jewish audience. And they would go back to the Old Testament and they would think about their history. And they had, God had actually had laws that he had laid down to deal with debt, both spiritual and physical debt. It's interesting, even along the lines of how they were to live as a society, if we look at Deuteronomy chapter 15, you'll see it on the screen, it says at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. Could you imagine every seven years your debts are just forgiven? I mean, can you imagine that? Yeah, right, exactly. Yes, right. <laughs> Calculating how long your mortgage is. and Oh, yeah, that would be nice to see that happen, right? But God, they had embedded this in their society, this idea that God is a God who forgives. He cancels debt, and as a society... God didn't want anyone to get so burdened down. He wanted there to be these checkpoints in the system. And every seven years was one of those checkpoints. And they would often, you know, rent out land according to how many years there were until the seven years were up. So they, they figured all that out. But that was something that got embedded right into their society in a physical sense. But they also had an awareness of their spiritual debt. It wasn't just a physical thing that God dealt with among the people. And there's a passage in Psalm 103 it says, he does not treat us, this is talking about God, God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Now right there he says our sins deserve or repay us, which means we are in debt. They saw themselves as in debt spiritually. But the good news is they're saying, they're celebrating that God's not a God that's just about collecting debt from us. He's a God who wants to forgive us of our debt. And he goes on, the psalmist says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And the good news is that this God that we are indebted to, that we have offended, that we have wronged, his attitude towards us, he could be and would be just to give us judgment for that. But his desire, his heart is to forgive us. To restore us in relationship with him. And why does he do this? Why doesn't he just give us the consequence that we deserve? Well, the very next verse in Psalm 103 says this. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. 
And notice that father imagery. We don't find that a lot in the Old Testament. It is in the Psalms. But Jesus used this almost exclusively as he referred to his father. He brought it front and center, this idea of God as our father. And even in the Old Testament, as a father has compassion on his children, he takes it from the lesser to the greater. Human dads have compassion on their kids, or at least they should. So your spiritual dad, a heavenly father, has compassion on those who fear him. Because if God is your father, if you acknowledge that you've wronged him and seek forgiveness, that can, as we'll see, can only be offered through Jesus and what he did for us, he shows compassion. That's his heart. That's what he wants to do. Now, how can God show us compassion when we deserve judgment? Does he just sweep things under the rug? Does he just say, well, you pat us on the head. That's okay. You know, try harder next time, but it's no big deal. No, when you read through the Old Testament, and the people would have been very aware of this, that how seriously God took sin. He took it very, very seriously to the point where almost anything they did that was an offense required some action on their part, often involving the blood of an animal. And the idea was clear that something or someone has to die. Their life has to be taken in order to account or cover over or pay for your sin. It's serious in God's sight. And sometimes we can lose sight of that in our lives. And we can think that sin isn't really that big of a deal. It's not really that serious to God. And we need to remind ourselves how seriously God indeed does take sin. So how can he show us compassion when we deserve judgment? Well, in the Old Testament, it was because of the sacrifices offered in faith. They would offer a sacrifice, and that would be something that would cover over, at least temporarily, their sin. And this really focused in, probably most poignantly, on one day of the year that was known as the Day of Atonement. And this is when the high priest, the only time in the year he was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, the, the center point of the temple, which was kind of the illustration of where God's presence dwelt on the earth. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And he would go in and offer a sacrifice on the, the mercy seat of the, of the covenant there, of the Ark of the Covenant. And that would atone for the sins of the people for that year. It was like canceling their debt for that year. And they would start again. And that was kind of like the highlight of their religious calendar. It was a very important day. They understood that there was accountability to this God and there was something that needed to happen for them to experience forgiveness. Now we fast forward and we get to look back on the cross and Jesus enters onto the scene and he's viewed as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John said regarding him. He's the perfect Lamb. No longer will we offer animal sacrifices. Now Jesus will come and give his life to be the perfect atonement to pay the debt that we couldn't pay. There's a really interesting passage in Colossians chapter 2 that Apostle Paul writes, and you'll see it on the screen here, and it says this, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. You were spiritually dead, now God made you alive. Well, how did he do that? Well, Christ is obviously involved in this. He forgave us all our sins. There it is. We can experience the forgiveness of God for everything that we've ever done that is offensive to him. And then he says this phrase, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now, it might be helpful here to understand a little bit of what went on in that society to make this passage this, that Paul wrote kind of come alive to us. When criminals were executed, there was often a written record of the crimes that they had done posted with them. 
Remember, Jesus had the charge, King of the Jews, written on a plaque and put above his head on the cross. That was a common practice. It was meant to be a public record of what the person had done, and it was also a warning that those who read what that person had done and saw the consequence that they experienced would think to themselves, well, I don't want to do that because this is where I'll end up. So it was, it was effective in many ways for that as well. So Jesus is hanging from the cross with a sign over his head stating the, his crime of treason. At least that's what it was viewed as because he had claimed to be the king. And there was only one king, Caesar. So that idea from a public standpoint or a political standpoint was, was treason. But he's not asking for forgiveness for his crime. He's hanging on that cross with that charge over his head. And, and he's there not saying, no, that's not true. I didn't, you know, I didn't do what I've been accused of. He's not, he's not doing that. He's not asking forgiveness for his crime. He's not saying, yeah, I did do that, and I'm sorry, and, and would you please let me off? But what is he doing? Instead, he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He speaks words of forgiveness from the cross, even though he's being unjustly crucified, even though they truly have the wrong guy. But as he hangs there, he asks his father to forgive. And a little while later, just before giving up his life, he would cry out in a loud voice, It is finished. It is finished. Well, what was finished? Certainly his fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah, all that they had said he would do, he's accomplishing. Now there's going to be more that Jesus will accomplish in the future, but he'd, he'd fulfilled what they'd been saying he would do. But also what was finished was the payment of the debt for our sin. It was completed. It was finished. The Greek word here is tetelestai. And a form of that word was often written on a record of a debt that had been repaid. Or of a slave whose freedom had been purchased. Or of a criminal who had been pardoned. In each of those cases there was usually a written record of the debt or the crimes. Or the fact that you were a slave. And if you were set free or your debt was paid. Or you were pardoned for your criminal activities or for whatever. Often across that piece of paper would be a, a form of the word testelesi. Meaning paid in full. Or it is finished. It was a part of their daily lives. The debt has been satisfied. So what is Paul saying here in Colossians 2? Now let's bring this to bear on what he says. That Jesus took the record, the, the physical record of our debt, the, the written paper of all the things we've done that are offensive to God, of all the charges that are against us. And so this, Jesus took that and when he was on that cross, he nailed our record of wrongs to the cross. And he dealt with it. And he paid it. And now stamped on that paper is to tell us I, it's finished. It's paid in full. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? Man, something we could never do for ourselves. And yet the Father's heart is that we would be forgiven. That's why we can become children of God. That's why we can call God our Father when we pray this prayer. If we have simply received the gift that Jesus accomplished for us through his death on the cross. As the author of the book of Hebrews tells us, Jesus died once for all. To bring us to God. He died once for all to pay the debt so that we could be brought near to God, to live in relationship with him, to call him our father. And that's why we can ask our father to forgive us our sins because Jesus paid our debt. He paid our debt. 
forgive us our debts. Thank you, God, that you have a heart towards us to forgive and that because of what Jesus accomplished, you are ready to forgive anything that we have done. Anything. When he says all our sin, he meant it. And those things in your and my minds, yeah, all but this, all but that. No, that too. That too. He died to forgive us all our sin, to forgive us our debts. But that's not all the verse says. Let's look at the second half of the verse. And forgive us our debts, Jesus teaches us to pray, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And I think it's important that we ask, what's the second part all about? And it's almost as if Jesus knew we would have questions, and so he expounded on this statement in verses 14 and 15 of Matthew chapter 6. In fact, this is the only section of the prayer that Jesus, right afterwards, expounds upon. And he says these words, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Hmm. We're just going to close now, and we're going to leave. <laughs> What's he saying here? This is a little uncomfortable, right? I mean, well, let's wrestle with this a little bit. What is, what is it that he's getting at? And I think it would be helpful if, if to explain this section of Scripture, we look at another section where Jesus tells a story, I think, that expounds upon what he just said here. And if you have a Bible, a way to look at Scripture, I want to turn you to turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, if you would, we're going to pick it up in verse 21. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Here Jesus is going to tell a story to illustrate what he is saying. Now the setting for the story in verse 21, it says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, why is Peter asking this? Obviously, somebody had offended him or wronged him, because usually that's when we ask this kind of question. Probably somebody had done it repeatedly, because he's like, how many times do I got to forgive this person? Now, the Jewish teachers, many of them would teach that three. You need to forgive them at least three times. So Jesus takes that number, doubles it, adds one, and says, how about seven? <laughs> Is that being extra gracious if I'm willing to forgive somebody seven times for, for sinning against me? And he thinks that, you know, Jesus might respond, oh, yeah, that's, that's great. But Jesus' response is, no, how about 77 or, depending on your translation, 70 times 7 times. Don't worry about the number too much exactly. The point is, whichever number it is, it's a whole lot more than what you think. In fact, don't even get hung up on the number being like, okay, well, if I get to 77, can I be done then? <laughs> no, the point is, he used a number that was so far out there. What he's really saying is, he's using hyperbole to say, there's really no limit. There's no limit. Man, that's hard. If you had somebody who's offended you repeatedly, time and time again, the first time maybe it wasn't so hard to forgive. The second time you're like, all right, I know this is what I should do. Third, fourth, fifth time, what are you starting to feel at that point? This person's just taking advantage of me. They're not really going to change. And yet we are called to forgive. Now later on we'll talk about forgiveness does not equal restoration. We'll talk about the difference of that. But we are called to forgive. And so to illustrate the story, Jesus then, illustrate his point, Jesus then tells a story. Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven, remember we've been taught to pray, your kingdom come. 
Jesus often told parables or stories about what the kingdom of heaven would be like. And in his stories, generally it was understood by the Jewish people that the king would generally represent God in his stories. So that was something that they kind of understood. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Now in the Greek, it's 10,000 talents. A talent was worth about 20 years of a day laborer's wage. So if you do the math, this guy owes him 200,000 years of the average daily wage. 200,000 years. Is he ever going to be able to repay this debt? The idea is no. He is so in debt that there's just no way this guy is ever going to be able to repay it. I don't know how he got to that level, but that's where we're at. That's Jesus' story, not mine. Since he was not able to pay, yeah, no kidding, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And that's a common practice of the day. They would do that. I'm not saying so we would do that. Obviously, very different for us today. So at this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. No, you won't. You can be patient till you die a hundred deaths. You're never going to pay this debt back. It's way more than you could ever do on your own. You just can't do it. But he says he's going to. And the servant's master, interestingly, took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Canceled the debt. He wrote, it's, it's fulfilled, it's done. He took the piece of paper that had the record of the man's debt, and he wrote, finished on it. And that man was now good to go. He didn't owe anything. He didn't say, pay me what you can. He didn't say, all right, well, you're never going to get to your full debt, but, you know, let's, let's knock it down to this, and we'll work on that over payments over time. He just canceled the debt. Could you imagine living under debt that is just crushing you, that you know you're never going to get out of, and someone who you're in debt to simply says, you're good. You're good. You don't have to pay it back. We're, we're good. Imagine the change in your life that brings, how you go to bed every night not worrying about that debt and you know, not thinking there's just, you, every day you work, you just realize it doesn't matter what I do or how much I, I'm never going to get out of this. And the weight that that would be upon us. And this master just says, you're good. The debt is canceled. But then the story takes a turn. This certainly would have caught Peter's attention and anybody listening saying, wow, you know, that's a very generous master to be willing to forgive that much. Remember, tie back to Peter's question, how much do we need to forgive? This king is willing to forgive a debt, a huge debt, right? But now this servant turned around in verse 28. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. The Greek hers is the word denarii, a hundred denarii. Denarius was the usual daily wage of a day laborer. So basically this servant owes him a hundred days worth of salary. Okay? Now that you could work off. That is something you could do. Right? It's not, you know, it's not crippling, but it's, it's significant. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Pay back what you owe me. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him. Notice the words, almost word for word, what the other servant had said. Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. See, but in this case, there is the possibility of the debt being paid back. It's not that great that he couldn't do it. 
give me time, I'll, I'll, I'll get it back to you, is the idea. So now this servant has a choice. What will he do with his fellow servant who's asking for mercy, really asking for time? He didn't ask him to cancel the debt. He just said, give me more time. I'll, I'll fulfill what I owe to you. But verse 30 says, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Which, by the way, think about that. If you're in prison, how well are you going to do on working off your debt? So basically, he made sure that this individual could never pay back his debt, right? When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. And they went and told their master everything that had taken place. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. That's a dark ending to this story. Like, that's like, whoa. The master was mad. He didn't like what the servant had done. You're telling me that after I was just so generous with you and the debt that I forgave you was crippling, you would never be able to pay it back, and I canceled it completely and entirely that you couldn't go to one of your fellow servants and be willing to cancel a debt against you that was so much less. Or at least work with the guy. You couldn't do that? Well, then you're going to pay a price for that. Because you're not reflecting who I am, what I want in my kingdom. I want my kingdom to represent something. And here's where we move from Jesus' story to God's heart for what he wants his kingdom to be. Verse 35, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Whoa. Whoa. Like we can't run away from that. Like we can't make excuses for it. We can't tone it down it's it's pretty strong language this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart what do we learn from the story here's what we learn beyond anything else in the kingdom forgiveness matters in the kingdom forgiveness matters in fact forgiveness serves as one of the center points of God's kingdom because without forgiveness guess what we don't get in the kingdom Without God's forgiveness, we'll never be a part of the kingdom. We'll never be a part of God's family. It's not too hard for us to figure out what's going on here. When we think about us and our spiritual debt that we owe to God, the amount of offense that we have against him that we cannot pay off. It is a debt that is crushing us that we cannot work off over time. It doesn't matter how many times you go to church. It doesn't matter how much money you give. It doesn't matter how many good things you do. All of that does not pay off your debt. The only thing that will cover our debt is the blood of Jesus. When Jesus died on that cross, his life was sufficient to cover our debt. That's how we receive forgiveness. That's the only way it works. And that is the center point of the kingdom of God. And so if we miss that, we miss the heart of the king and we miss the heart of the kingdom. 
Forgiveness is the basis of God's plan of restoring all things. God wants to restore. That will not happen with us unless we experience the forgiveness of God and then in turn express that forgiveness to those who are around us. That's what it means to live as part of the kingdom. We can't be restored to God unless he forgives us and we can't be restored to each other unless we forgive each other. What Jesus is saying is we've got to stop the downward spiral of wrong for wrong. You hurt me, I hurt you back. You do something to me, I hold it against you. That spiral, that cycle, how does it stop? It stops with forgiveness. Of saying, I will not hold that against you. I will choose to forgive. Even though I may have a right to hold this against you, I will choose to forgive. Forgiveness is at the heart of the kingdom and the heart of the king. So if you're in the kingdom, if you've experienced the forgiveness of the king, you are expected to forgive others. It is not optional with God. Jesus teaches us to pray this way to remind us that as kingdom people, aware of our forgiveness from the king, we are obligated to forgive others. In fact, in the prayer, he's almost like he's assumed we've already done it. God, would you forgive us as we have forgiven others? Like, it's almost like we come to him having checked ourselves to say, all right, I'm going to come and ask for God's forgiveness. How am I doing at forgiving other people? I need to take a look at that area of my life as I come and seek God's forgiveness. Jesus teaches us to pray this way to remind us that as a kingdom people, we are aware of our forgiveness coming from the king and we're obligated to forgive others. He's assumed that we've already done it. And if we won't, then we need to go back and assess if we have really experienced the forgiveness that only our Heavenly Father can offer to us. I think this is, this is the difficult part. If I won't forgive, if I just flat out say I am not forgiving, then i got to go back and check have I really received the forgiveness that is, God offers to me through Jesus. Have I really come to grips with what God has forgiven me for? Have I really humbly acknowledged I need the forgiveness of God that can only be found in Jesus? Because once I acknowledge and admit that I need that, that, that changes me. It begins that transformation process of me whereby now as I look out at other people, as I have offended and wronged God and he has been willing to forgive me, as people around me may offend and do wrong to me, I need to be willing to forgive them because I reflect the character of the king. That's what I'm called to do as a member of his kingdom. It's what I'm called to do. And God takes it very, very seriously. Now notice... This isn't the idea that if you struggle to forgive, all of us struggle at times to forgive. Not if it takes some time to forgive, it may take us some time. But he says if you won't forgive, if you just flat out refuse, I won't even go down that path, I won't even go down that track, I won't. Then we need to question if we have truly experienced the forgiveness of our Heavenly Father. So the question is, are there areas in our life where we need to forgive? Now, let me talk a little bit about what forgiveness is and isn't, because sometimes there can be confusion about this. Forgiveness is not ignoring or downplaying what has happened. Forgiveness does not mean you ignore the offense or sweep it under the rug. No, you deal with it. Forgiveness means 
that it's acknowledged, if not by the other person, at least by you. This hurt me. It was wrong. And I choose to forgive. Forgiveness does not equal trust. We can choose to forgive and not trust that individual. If that individual continually hurts us in repeated ways, we are called to forgive them each and every time. We are not called to act as if nothing happened and return to trusting them like we did before that trust was broken. If you've been in a relationship where someone has deeply hurt you, perhaps a marriage or friendship, you understand that you are called to forgive as a follower of Jesus, but that does not mean that trust is restored in that moment. It's the first step. It's the first step. Seeking forgiveness and offering forgiveness becomes the foundation that trust can be rebuilt on, but it is not the same thing as trust. Trust does need to be earned over time. Also, forgiveness, remember, is a choice. It's a choice. It does not equal restoration does not equal trust it does not equal restoration it's often the first step in restoration again when we choose to forgive that opens the door for a relationship to be restored but it is not the same thing as that reconciliation takes two people it takes two people being willing to come and deal with the offense and and move beyond it forgiveness takes one it takes you being willing to say i forgive you may not even have the other person come and ask for forgiveness. They may not even acknowledge that they did anything wrong. But if you know that's what needs to happen in your own heart, you are called by your heavenly Father to extend forgiveness to that person. You're willing to give up the right to hold it against them or retaliate. That's what forgiveness means. You're putting into God's hands and saying, God, I'm going to let you deal with it. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends. Don't do it. But leave room for God's wrath. <laughs> Put that person in God's hands. Let him deal with them. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Let the ultimate judge deal with the situation. It's not us as followers of Jesus to seek to, to hurt other people, to continue this cycle of pain. And hurting one another. No, as, as kingdom people, we are called to stop the cycle and say, I choose to forgive. Some of you are old enough to remember what happened in South Africa with Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela. And the whole process of forgiveness and restoration that that nation went through. It was amazing. But it only happened because groups of people decided we are going to stop trying to hurt each other. And we're going to seek to forgive the hurts that have been done. And great things came out of that. They can do it in our lives as well. As we turn that person over to God, say, God, I forget. I will not hold this against them. They are in your hands. You do with them what you know needs to be done. And I would add to that, it doesn't mean saying, get them, God. <laughs> it means, God, they're yours. You deal with them as you see fit, and I will accept that. And hopefully it would even get to the point of wishing them well. And for some of you, you have a hard time imagining this right now. There's some people who have hurt you so badly that the idea of wishing them well, just, it's, no, I can't do that. And that may be a process, but forgiveness can be the first step in that process where God begins to transform your heart. Again, doesn't mean they didn't hurt you, doesn't mean they weren't wrong, doesn't mean that God may not deal with that in some way in their life, that's up to him. 
But for me, can I get to the point of saying, God, would you so move in my heart, remind me of how I've been forgiven, and get me to the point where I could say, God, I, I wish them well. I can pray for them, and I can pray your blessing on their life, that they would come to know you in a deeper way. There are benefits to forgiveness. We know this. Social sciences have, have demonstrated this. Stronger relationships for those who forgive. Better mental, emotional, and physical, even physical health. People forgive tend to be happier, less angry. These are all benefits that God has written into this idea of offering forgiveness. When we refuse to give forgiveness to people, we really often are hurting ourselves, not even so much the other person. And when I'm tempted not to forgive, maybe when you're tempted that way too, perhaps as Peter was when he asked the question, I don't know. Remind ourselves of what Paul said in Ephesians 4. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. It's almost like Paul, like when he said be kind and compassionate, forgiving each other, caught us saying, well, how much? Do you know how much this person's hurt me? Do you know how deeply they wounded me? Do you understand the pain I felt because of this person? Oh, well, let me add this. Just as in Christ God forgave you. What's God forgiven you of? Everything you've done that's offensive to God. Every selfish act you've made, every selfish thought, everything you've said or done that's hurt another person or been offensive to what God wants for your life. He is willing to forgive all of that. And so he calls me to be willing to forgive as well. This is a hard challenge. This is not as easy as the words might seem to be. Father, in this prayer that I offer to you, would you forgive me my debt as I have forgiven others theirs. So I want us to just take a, a moment of time together, if you would. Just bow your head and close your eyes, if you would. I don't know where all of you are at in this area of forgiveness. But I've been around long enough to know that we all struggle with it at one point or another. Maybe right now is one of those times for you. And I want to challenge you, in light of what God has forgiven you, as hard as it is, as much as that person has hurt you and you're not saying they haven't, would you be willing to say, Father, forgive them? Would you be willing to offer that forgiveness? To let it go? To give it over and give that person over or those people over to God and whatever he wants to do in their life? Knowing that his choices are going to be better than yours. Are you willing to forgive? would you take this opportunity just to spend a minute or two talking to your heavenly father about this whole idea of forgiveness perhaps for you you need to start with thanking him and reminding yourself of his forgiveness of you and then would you allow him to do that difficult work of prompting in your heart forgiveness of others stop the spiral lay the foundation for restoration in a relationship do what your heavenly father is calling you to do. Do kingdom work. Forgive. You know, as we close this morning, it's been a, a solemn passage, right? It's been a, quite a challenge. And as often happens, this prayer is tied into Jesus' rest of his sermon on the mount. And so I'd like us to read another section of this message together as we close. It'll be on the screen. Would you read it with me? You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is the heart of our Father. And as his children, we are to demonstrate the heart of the Father with those that we encounter. This week, may we forgive because we have been forgiven so much. Let's do that this week. Have a great week, everyone. If you're new, again, join us out right out those doors. We'd love to interact with you for a few minutes. See you next week.